Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Ethan Steimel, here for episode 20. Thank you for being here. This is a special episode because I'm actually interviewing two guests, a theater investor and a producer, filmmaker, actor. Before we get to the meat and potatoes of today's episode, let me request something of you. If you are in a good mood, take a moment to find our podcast on any podcast app or online and leave a rating and review. That helps us reach more listeners. After you've done that, and if you are still in a good mood, please find us on YouTube and subscribe. Our goal is 1,000 subscribers, which is what we need in order to run ads on our videos. And last, but not least, if you are still feeling kind, generous, and supportive, please support our show financially. You can do that by visiting artisticfinance.com to become a patron, which gives you access to additional content and early releases of the episodes. If you're not ready to become a patron, you can visit our gift store and pick up some of our overpriced merchandise. However you support us, thank you, thank you, thank you. And now, since we're all in good moods, let's get to today's guests, Ira Gilbert and Jason Kennedy. Ira is a lawyer, theater investor, and board member of the Dramatist Guild Foundation in New York City. He knows more about theater, story, and art than I can even imagine knowing. Jason is a wellness coach, content creator, and on-camera personality based in Los Angeles. He is an inspiring personality with a positive outlook on life. Together, along with Ori Daniel, they have founded Take a Knee, Take a Stand, which is a resource for white people to educate themselves on systemic racism in the USA and to take action on becoming anti-racist. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Welcome, Ira Gilbert and Jason Kennedy, to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. And I'm just going to say that we're recording this on August 20th, 2020. So we're amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, and it's also during the Black Lives Matter reawakening. Uh, Could you each give us a brief recap of your life and how you got to where you are right now in your career? So my name is Ira Gilbert. Uh, I'm a lawyer from New York City. I am white. I am 56 years old, which is hard for me to believe, but I am. I'm a male. Um, I went to college at Columbia. My law degree is from Georgetown. Um, I am a single person, um, which I was very happily so until COVID. And I guess I can keep going, but let me give Jason a chance to jump in. Hey, I'm Jason Daly Kennedy, and I am a Angelino now, although I lived in New York for three years for living out here, before moving out here. I am married. My husband and I have three children uh, whom we have adopted. And yeah, I work at the intersection of wellness and content, but historically I was a producer for social justice and uh, pro-social initiatives. Amazing. So this is the first time I've ever had two people on at once. So I'm going to try to start with us getting to know you, mostly I have artists on. So I guess Ira is the first like non-artist, though I think he knows more about theater than I'll ever know. Anybody (laughs) in the entire world. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So for both of you, what is a live event that you like to experience or a piece of art that you like? 
When I was a little kid, um, I happened upon lists of films, Tony winners, Oscar winners, and um, they stuck with me for whatever reason with a, with a strange memory for these things. And I started to actually watch some of these things and listen to some of these things because a slightly older kid kind of teased me saying, oh, you think you're smart, you know all these winners of awards, but what does that mean if you've never seen them? So I started to watch and you know, your question, what do I like to listen to? What do I like to experience? Has evolved so much since I was a child. If we're talking at this very moment, uh, almost every night for the past month, I've been listening to a composite of Ennio Morricone's um, Gabriel Zobo with On Earth As It Is In Heaven, um, which is from his film, The Mission, which in my opinion uh, was just voted the greatest film score of all time by 40 top film composers uh, in a uh, survey that was taken by Variety. <clears throat> and um, it, it regularly ranks as one of, if not the greatest film score. I, I just so recommend listening to it. And I watched The Mission in 86 because by then, you know, I knew that it was a Palme d'Or winner and all the rest, but then I really started to just pay attention to what I was watching and listening. Once it's sort of like anything else, once you watch and listen enough to things, it starts to become a part of you. And um, Ennio Morricone, for those who weren't familiar, he's really even more famous for the spaghetti westerns with Clint Eastwood, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, Once Upon a Time in the West, all of those from the 1960s and the like. I know, I guess I'm going to give a wrong answer because it segues a little bit back to who I am. Um, I, I joined a law firm called Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Morton, and Garrison, about, you know, however long ago it is, 20 years, whatever. Um, it's a firm I'm very proud to be proud of. You know, I'll get to more later about it because of its involvement in um, racial justice through the years, but it has a major theater and entertainment department. Through that theater and entertainment department, I just was given the opportunity to get not only to invest in the theater, but to watch more theater, not just as a, you know, a typical audience member, but as someone who's gotten to know people in the theater world. So when you ask the question, what do I like to watch? I like to watch film. I like to watch ballet and opera and, and classical music. But more than anything, I like to watch theater. I like to be in an audience and experience the excitement of a, of a wonderful show. If I'm lucky enough to be at an opening night, I was recently at the opening night of Hades Town a year ago, and I started to cry, not because the show was, you know, that type of show, but because it was just so brilliant. It was just such a, a work of art. I said to myself, you know, like Hamilton and a few others, Matilda, I said, I'm going to be, you know, this is going to be something that's in the canon in a hundred years from now. Of course, that was pre-COVID, and who knows what things will look like in 100 years from now with theater and everything else. So that's sort of a long-winded way of, of just trying to say, I love theater, I love great theater, and I come to it through, in part, my firm, um, and in part, my upbringing. Okay, before Jason answers, I'm just curious, if, I don't know why you would leave New York, but if you were living somewhere else, let's say New Orleans... Do you think that you would still, theater would still be your like favorite thing to go do? That's a really good question. The answer is, it depends. Like New Orleans, you know, I've been to New Orleans and it's a great town um, for crawfish and to go down Bourbon Street and have a drink. There's not much theater there. I'm, I'm really, I pride myself on really being a quintessential New Yorker other than three years of law school. I've been here my entire life and I'm lucky enough to travel a lot until recently. We're not allowed anymore anymore with good reason. 
But um, I always just can't wait to come back. It's as wonderful as everywhere else is. London, I feel like, is New York's sister city because of the theater scene. But um, I don't think of it that way. And it's funny you ask it, Ethan, because I've never thought about leaving New York since I came back. During the pandemic, I have for the very first time. To LA. Uh, for LA, sure. I would leave the United States if I could at this point, to tell you the truth. Amen, brother. I think we all would. <laughs> you know, Ireland and New Zealand are the places for citizenship now for countries that speak English. You know, at the end of the day, I honestly would just live somewhere else for that place. And I would just travel to New York two or three times a year for the theater. Um, I would just see two shows a day, every day for a week. But I see like a hundred shows a year on average, so I would just have to cut a lot out. <laughs> Amazing. All right, Jason, what's a live event you like or a piece of art you like? You know, I have to say I, I love immersive experiences, really. You know, I've produced those. Um, Ira and I, uh, Ira introduced me to his very good long-term friend, Harry Belafonte, and I produced a social justice music and arts festival with Harry for his charitable organization back in 2016. When we were working to get out the vote, that didn't work out so well in 2016. But we were also, it, you know, there was a very huge social justice component. And so we worked with organizations like Color of Change and Black Lives Matter and different on the ground organizations, uh, Anti-Recidivism Coalition, all of these organizations that were there to kind of promote this idea that we can live in a more just world, but it requires a lot of work. I love things like that. That event needed a lot more love than it got and deserved a lot more love than it got from some of the other producers who were involved. I won't mention any names on this podcast, but call me afterwards. <laughs> okay. But what I will say is that I love when you can be wrapped around and surrounded by all of the elements that are at play and there's something that drives home a message. So I love theater. My kids love theater. I have three or four, six and seven year old who I have watching Hamilton for the 400th time again on Disney Plus because they're just, you know, they love it. They're singing, you know, not giving away my shot all the time. And it's it's an amazing experience. But I really do think that if there's something that can always drive home a message, that's where I really that's my jam. And I love to create that. I was an actor. I guess I still am. I still love an agent. But like I. I like being part of that whole production too. I've been a director, I've directed commercials and been a producer, like I said. So I, I love everything coming together. It's both visually stunning and soulfully um, rewarding. Yeah, awesome. This Sankofa event that Harry and Jason and a few others produced, uh, I understand why you said what you said, Jason, um, from a production perspective and difficulties politically actually getting it set up and the like. But as an audience member myself, I thought it was spectacular. People like Carlos Santana and John Legend and, and uh, Dave Matthews and Harry himself performed. And I, I just want to say I thought you did an amazing job. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, the, it was. The performances were incredible. And it was Harry's last performance. That's right. And it was an incredible show. So I am grateful to have been part of that. Amazing. Sure. All right. So that's your creative personalities a bit. Now your financial personalities. Are you bad or good with money? And growing up, did you have good financial examples? I was very fortunate growing up. My father, um, who passed away about 13 years ago now, was a doctor back when doctors made a lot of money. <laughs> Being a nice Jewish boy himself, uh, he was careful. He was lucky enough through his father, my grandfather, to know um, a guy named Joe Hirshhorn of the Hirshhorn Museum and the Smithsonian Institute. 
and he would advise on what to do. And it was always be careful, be a bull, be a bear, don't be a hog. My best friend Frank's father used to say that also. The examples were good and I am careful with money. I, I diversify quite a bit. Um, being a theater investor, some would say I'm not so careful with money because <laughs> um, it's not you know, a great investment historically speaking. But I think of theater investing is not a money question in an odd way even. Mm -hmm. I think of that as a passion to be a small, small part of the theater that way and just helping shows get on and most get on and then fold. Yeah. But um, like I said in the pre prior answer, it's a thrill when it succeeds, especially if it's really good. So yes, lucky, careful, and uh, I recommend to anybody listening to it, you know, invest with people whom you trust. Hmm. That's really cool. I have seen Ira's, you know, investing in people that he trusts in it, and, and it's an amazing joy that he gets and gives. So that's really inspiring. And I'd love to be able to do that someday. That's not today for me, really. I mean, I do as much as I can. I um, I actually love this question, Ethan, especially because the intersection of creativity and finance is a really tricky one for a lot of people, a lot of my peers and a lot of people that I've come up with, um, and myself included. I historically was not great with money, and I have to work really hard and consistently to be good with money. And that's my journey, right? And I came up in a household that um, my father came from more money than my mother did. And it was interesting to see those two types of backgrounds and it really informed me. But my parents always were really amazing at providing for us, even if it meant that they didn't get, you know, mm -hmm. um, at certain yeah. times. So I come from like a real worker bee background, I think. And but also one that really appreciated the value, not only of family, but of the arts and of activism. And so um, I really just find that question really fascinating. Uh, talking about theater not being a good investment necessarily, or not a safe one, <laughs> like people knew Hamilton was going to Broadway, and it seemed like it was going to be an amazing success, and it was. Even putting money into it still, you risk it never coming back. Like even if it did really well, it could have folded after three months. But that's like your best case scenario. But that's, but that's absolutely true, and you are picking the best case scenario, you know. Um, Jason's and my mutual dear friend, Stephen Schwartz, says in Pippin, Godspell, Wicked, Disney, etc. He came back from a reading of Hamilton. And I happened to be having dinner with him that night. He said, I just saw the most amazing reading, get in. And um, couldn't, because Lynn, who um, I'm on a board with, the Dramatist Guild Foundation for Theater, he was very loyal to everyone who invested in the Heights, which was very good of him. Most people look at it that way and everybody knew this was a masterpiece and so I couldn't. But other shows, sometimes I make a decision to invest as a lot of people do based upon how it did in London, how it did off-Broadway. And that does not mean I've learned the hard way, losing a lot of money through the years, that it will translate uh, into success on Broadway. I remember Mountaintop won the Olivier and I was dumb enough not to read it. Usually I asked to read or listen and I was like, oh, but it won the Olivier. It's, you know, and it's about Dr. King. And, and I sat there opening night with Harry Belafonte and his amazing wife, Pam, and uh, Taylor Branch, who wrote the, you know, the books. I mean, I was like, oh, my God, look at this place I'm in. And I sat there feeling sick <laughs> because it was, it was just not great. No offense to, you know, the great writer and stuff, but it just missed the mark. Um, I think in the translation and it didn't do well in New York, um, it toured and, um, and then there are other shows that, you know, just, it's a similar situation. You just never know what's going to happen. Yeah. 
Amazing. All right. What is the best financial decision that you have ever made? Keeping with the theme of trust, a friend of mine who lived in New York until about 10 years ago and moved or 15 years ago, moved to Austin with his wife and children. We met at a business meeting. Everybody in the room spoke Japanese but us. And that's how we became friends. (laughs) Uh, Because we were just literally kicking each other under the table at a certain point, trying not to laugh. He eventually left that firm and he started his own company, his own um, hedge fund. He is a very honest guy. He's a very hardworking guy. And I have made a lot of money through him because of just knowing who he is. It's about him. And interestingly, at the beginning of COVID, for the first time since I invested with him about a decade ago or whatever it is, you know, and I guess I should say the name of the company because I, I do think he likes a shout out. It's called Elberon. Um, and it's been written up as like one of the top five um, small hedge funds in America and all of that. Um, for the first time, it actually lost a decent amount of money. And, you know, I was like, you know, well, it should have, right? I mean, and it's coming back already, but uh, that was the best investment I ever. Amazing. Jason, top that. <laughs> the best financial decision was applying for the PPP. <laughs> no, I don't know. I, I don't think I made it yet. Like I said earlier, though, my ongoing financial decision is paying attention. The best advice I've had is to pay attention every day a little bit as to what's going on. No matter if there's $6 or six figures in your bank accounts, it's really been the thing that like, um, well, keeps more of the more of the big money in there, I think. But it also yeah. keeps the sanity around, too. And that's been the, like the best advice I've ever given is just doing a little bit every day to make sure that you know where everything is. Yeah. I feel like that's a message on this podcast that I'm saying to people. It's like finances aren't complicated, but you have to focus on them. It's like the gym. It's like you're not or working out in any way, shape or form. You're not going to have an opportunity to get what you want. It's fitness, right? It's financial fitness. It's physical fitness. You know, it's, it's very similar. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. What is the worst financial decision you've ever made? Oh, I've made many. <laughs> many, many shows in which I've put a decent or... A lot of money and to have completely returned zero percent of my investment there would be i'd be naming a number right now so just certain theatrical investments which is not to discourage any listeners because sometimes i did it because i knew the producer and i'm like okay i want to help with whatever happens sometimes like with the mountaintop example i didn't read it um so like jason said pay attention you know if you're going to invest in theater Look at who the producers are, have a lawyer take a look at the paperwork because it is not all the same, and really try and get to know the show. Even, you know, go to a rehearsal. Um, most of the shows do invite investors to address rehearsal, so it's too late. But, you know, you have the conversation and you just say, can I, um, you know, get more information? So whenever I didn't do that, I often lost a lot of money. Okay, wait, wait, before Jason answers, <laughs> I'm just curious, like, if you have a ballpark figure here, how, how many shows have you invested in and how many were failures? Say you've invested in 100, were 10 complete losses or 90? With real numbers, I think I've invested in around 30. Three or four have been phenomenal. Another 10 have made back their money, more or less. Like, you know, they've broken even or made a little bit. Uh-huh. Another, I'd say I've lost every penny on about 10. A third. I think I've lost every penny on about a third of them. And and then if I'm not, my math is off because I wasn't paying attention to myself, there's probably three or four in there where I made 
some money back. Like for example, again, to anyone who's interested in theater investing, I knew I wasn't gonna make money on Steven Sondheim shows. And he's my artistic hero since I was a kid for the theater. And um, when the opportunities came to invest in you know, company and Sweeney Todd, I said, I don't care. Sondheim shows almost never make money. And I made back, I don't know, like a third on company. And I won the Tony, you know, for best revival of the musical. And Roe should have won best actor and all the rest. And it was, word of mouth was spectacular. But, you know, it beat a chorus line plus. But it just didn't do it. And that's okay. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Okay, Jason, what's your worst financial decision? <laughs> not asking for what I'm worth, you know? Um, not doing that and, and leaving money on the table. If it was just, you know, easier to walk away instead of um, pushing for it. You constantly have to be fighting for yourself, asking for what you're worth or asking for more than you're worth, hoping to get what you're worth. I mean, and it's a balance of you're either underpaid or you're overpaid. Yeah. And part of that is knowing what you're worth, too. Right. And like knowing what it is with, with what the task that you're going out for. And many creatives do several different things. Right. So what are you asking for? And I think the other part of that is, is just numbers. So you don't take it personally. You don't attach uh, intrinsic value to it. It's an exchange of energy. You know, you're giving your art, your craft, your creativity, your production skills, what have you, in exchange for the dollar that's available. Yeah. Amazing. Um, Which job, and Ira, maybe you can say which show, but which job of yours has been the most financially lucrative? And would you do it again? Would you do that job again? Or um, My current job at Paul Weiss is my most lucrative, and I've been there a long time, and I would do it again in a minute. It's a really wonderful place that defies big loss stereotypes in many ways. In terms of shows, Town was on its way until the pandemic hit. I was lucky enough to invest in, in a Hairspray and Book of Mormon, and, but the numbers I put in were small. Uh, not enough, um, but um, so I guess those would be, uh, you know, there are others, beautiful tour. And but when you invest in a tour for listeners who are thinking of that, be aware that you're gonna have to pay taxes of like $5 or $1, I'm not kidding, in like 20 different states. And it's all, you know, if you're paying your accountant, that's a lot, if you're doing it yourself, it's a lot. So I don't know, you have to, you have to really consider. Yeah. Okay, and Jason, before you say, a follow-up question from a previous question, which was, Ira, you said make sure your lawyer reads the documents for the show you're going to invest in. You are a lawyer, but do you have a different lawyer go over those documents? Yes, a friend of mine um, who is a specific entertainment lawyer, without getting into it, lawyers, at least in New York, are almost all hyper-specialized. I practice real estate and within real, uh, real estate for the last however many years it's been, because I started doing commercial real estate, but I focused on residential real estate. So I know nothing about entertainment contracts, especially since someone else looks. Amazing. Okay, Jason, what job of yours has been the most financially lucrative? Before we get to that, and I don't know if you can talk about this or not, Ira, but Ira has a story of talking to a certain person who sits in a certain office right now (laughs) as an attorney. And it's one of the most, my favorite stories about that person. I don't see why I can't. <laughs> I can always cut it out later. <laughs> it, it, it's going to agitate me. Should, should we save it for the end, Jason? I'm happy to tell it. We'll, we'll save it. We'll save it. He gets. Uh, yeah, it will change my mood drastically. I, I tell this story all the time. Yeah, because it does tie into what we're doing. <laughs> okay, so we need to keep you in a good mood until the end. <laughs> and then. 
Okay, I took a note, so I'll remember. Jason will remember. Yeah. Um, my most lucrative, I mean, honestly, financially lucrative projects that I've done so far, the most financially lucrative ones have been the ones that were not necessarily related to what my passion is. But that's just evolving. You know what I mean? There are some, there are times where I've like taken on a project that brings in money that I just need to bring in. I'm not a prostitute, um, <laughs> just to clarify that point. I mean, I'm not knocking it, by the way, either. No, no, never. Um, I just think that ship has sailed. And so um, I think part of it is just like, you know, if there's something that comes along, I'm going to I'm going to take it to take the money. But, the you know, the thing is, is, and I think if there's actors that listen to this in particular, the advice part of that with a little bit of, you know, 20 years of experiencing that is to not go down that path like oh this will be the thing that maybe will fix me because you're not broken a and b keep your passion there I, I have a friend who worked for an ad agency who kept getting offers for promotions but she wanted to be an administrative assistant because she wanted to just focus on her writing career and she kept getting she kept saying no to all these promotions and finally it paid off and she's now a multi emmy winning writer you know for um, for television so i i think that's that's a key part of of balancing out the earning and the doing almost every artist that i've had on the most financially lucrative has not been like their passion per se and you know that that's a that's a trend i think one or two it has been and it can be. It just, you know, like the other thing is, is that it doesn't have to be that way all the time either. Exactly. Okay. Uh, if money wasn't an issue, what would your career goal be or your life's goal be? If I were to leave my firm tomorrow, I would try and be a director of theater when it returns in a year or two. Really? Have you directed before? I don't know your whole life story. I've edited a lot of scripts um, on the down low. Um, and books for that matter. And I just like doing it um, for friends and just people in that world, and as well as you know, a couple of novels and the like. And um, you know, I said it before, it's like, how does somebody become a math teacher? She goes to school and she studies and there's that book which I never read that says 10,000 hours, you become an expert, anyone becomes an expert in anything. And I have seen you know, a couple of thousand shows and I focus on it, I care about it and I think I know at this point, you know, it's, it's, um, and not because, you know, of anything innate about me, it's because of experience and passion. Those two combined um, is a respect for it. And when I walk in now, I, I, I'm like, well, I, I would do this different, I would do that different. It's just a different way of looking at things once you've seen enough. And this is embarrassing, but I'll say it. I've seen 7,000 movies. Right. And it is embarrassing because it means I have no life. Right. <laughs> but, because how does one see seven does? But I'm just going to say I don't sleep. He doesn't sleep. That's how yeah. he has a life. I don't sleep that much, which is too bad. So I feel like we're, we're a film director. I know things now that I didn't, you know, years ago, just because of being involved that way as, as a viewer. But you become a solo participant in some ways. Right. You know, think about things you love. You're in a concert and you hear the wrong note and you know it. Amazing. Okay, Jason, if money wasn't an issue, what would your life's goal be? Be in the movies that Ira directs. <laughs> <laughs> You're hired. Good. Done. So, Paul Weiss, I have some news for you. Uh, like, I've been on camera and behind camera and a director and a producer and all that stuff for a long time. Really what I love doing and consistently have loved doing is these, this concept of hosting 
um, and bringing a large audience to a small slice of life uh, and doing that with the intended impact of moving the needle of change. So creating and hosting shows where I get into in-depth conversations with folks to promote anti anything from anti-racism to fighting poverty to overcoming addictions um, and more personal things too. One of the things I love about Jason is that the question itself assumes something that's normal and natural for 90-something percent of people. I'm certainly among that 90-something percent, which is the money matters. And to Jason, yeah, yes, to eat, but the money doesn't matter. It is really about the passion projects. Uh, I have, there have been so many things through the years, Jason, where someone comes to me with an idea and I call you up and ask for advice. And before I know it, literally, you are running the show, like the brewery, <laughs> yeah. right? I'm going to mention the brewery very, very quickly. A couple of friends were in my apartment in 20, whatever it was, 17 or 18. It was basically to start a brewery in Provincetown. And it was going to be politically motivated and to donate a certain percentage of the proceeds to Democratic candidates running for the House and the Senate. And it was called you know, flip, flip the House. I was with these people and I was like, you know, I bet Jason might give us, you know, some of his time. He always does. And he'll just have some ideas. And at the end of the day, Jason was a one of the three or four co-producers of the whole thing. Just it was like, do this, do that, do this. And knock wood, it's doing really great. And it's giving a lot of money to the Democrats. It's, it's wonderful. Chris Hartley uh, is the founder of it in, in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Oh, amazing. Good work, Jason. And Ira. <laughs> yeah, Ira's a great connector of that, too. Um, I, you know, I just like have ideas. I think I am very much an idea guy. If Ira's constantly thinking about it from the director perspective, too, I'm kind of thinking of like, what's the idea here? How do we get people on board kind of thing? Amazing. Okay. What financial advice would you give yourself back when you started your career? Or would you give somebody else that's going to start on a similar career? Just say, you know, save money. Don't be a nun or a, you know, or a monk. Enjoy yourself, but realize that someday a pandemic can come. <laughs> and I don't know that tongue in cheek. I really don't because it's something I never in a million years anticipated, despite having seen Bill Gates' TED Talk a few years ago and understanding that it's possible, but never emotionally realizing it, that it could happen. And um, I'm being literal about the pandemic, but there are so many other things, you know, and as I say, work with people you trust. And, you know, I would also say, even though it costs money to have a financial advisor, if you get a financial advisor, it costs you some money. It's by percentage, you know, or fees, however many transactions you do. But to me, it's worth it. My family's from Morgan Stanley, a great guy. His father was my father's financial advisor. And, um, you know, and you don't have to say yes. You do your own research as well. But I think it helps young people to have somebody guiding them and diversify. That is also, you hear that, but it's true. And more, I would do more real estate also. As being a real estate lawyer, I just can't. I, I do it all day for others. And I just I've foolishly turned down investments through the years because I just don't feel like doing another closing for our contract for myself. <laughs> yeah, real estate is one of those things that always pops in. You know, when you get to diversifying or long-term wealth or something, real estate always pops in. We recently started getting into real estate. And I, I agree, that's one of those things where, and it's not about like buying the flip flipper either. It's about buying the income property, I think. That's one of the things that, um, and I have a financial advisor. I agree with that too. I think... The other thing is like what I said is it, it's about being present. 
it's about being aware of what's going on, not only financially, but like with what's going on in the world around you. So that like if a pandemic pops up, you're not just caught off guard. <laughs> like we, we should know these things. Right. And being paying attention to these things. And, you know, like you said, you watched that documentary and you kind of like didn't think about it, but we moved so much. And one thing that COVID has taught us, hopefully, that we'll retain is to like slow down, you know, collectively. Amazing. Um, I don't know if you guys will have an answer to this. What can we do to educate other artists, other people about the importance of paying attention to their own finances? I, I want to just speak to artists on that, even though I'm not one, but I'm peripherally involved in the theater world. And um, I just have such admiration for people who go into the arts, um, any kind of the arts, painting and dance and singing and all the rest, because there's no straight and narrow path to that. It, it's, a, it's a true risk. And the reason I'm starting my answer by saying that is that if you're brave enough to begin with, to be one of those people who follows one's passion and takes the true risk, then I would say, know that you're a brave soul. Know that you're willing to do that. And since you have faith in yourself, you know, you have to learn, as we all do in all our professions, but since you have faith in yourself starting out, have faith enough to know that you are of value, that you are unique. We're all unique, but that's what the most successful people, and particularly actors and the like, bring their, their certain, um, whatever the right word is, their, their personalities, but that's not the word I'm looking for, their essences. Uh, you know, the humanity, as Harry would say, to who they are. So it's not easy to say that the producer or whoever is, you know, you, whoever you're trying to get a job from, let's say, you know what, I, I could have gone to business school or law school or become a teacher or whatever, but I'm here. I'm in this room. I want to make it as a designer or whatever and know that you are worth something. Do not let yourself be underpaid. Ask for it. Most people in my experience will actually respect that. And all they can do is say no. Um, so I would just say, know your value. Don't be arrogant, but know your value. And part two, very quickly, just educate yourself. Just because you're an artist, it doesn't mean you don't have to know how the market works. Know how the market works. Don't be foolish enough to just go out there and pick individual stocks. That is a loser's game for almost everyone across the board, unless you're Warren Buffett. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, learn what, about what blue chips are. Read a couple of financial books. Read a book by Jason's and my mutual friend, Andy Tobias, the former treasurer of the DNC for 20 years and one of its biggest fundraisers ever, books on how to be smart with money. And they're fun to read, believe it or not. If you read them by Andy, I'm sure others are good too. And it doesn't take long and it, and it will hold you in good stead, especially as a young person. I, you know, I know education has changed a lot since I was in school, but I, I think a constant is that they still don't really teach real world money they, you know unless you go to business school or that kind of thing you don't really leave school and i think school is a great thing but you don't leave it knowing the answers to your i think important questions either yeah okay jason before you <laughs> jump in a follow-up question for both of you from a previous question which is you both said financial advisors get a financial advisor how old were you when you got a financial advisor i, I was lucky i was born with one <laughs> <laughs> from my family you know, but, but uh, you know, in college, some friends, some enterprising friends would be talking about money. In fact, I, I can think of one in particular who said, you know, let's buy a building. And I was like, no, no, no. And I've had these conversations with friends of many years, 40 years, literally through the years. And those who've hired them, college is not too early a time to start. 
Because again, even if you have no money when you're in college, they're gonna, it's on commission kind of thing. You know what I mean? It's, it's, so it's not like you have to lay out a down payment or anything like that and talk to people who you know and trust and find someone that way. Um, I was 32 and then I didn't have one from like 35 to 40 and I'm 41 now. So I'm 42, I'm 42 now, I'm 42 now. Yeah, so I had one and then parted ways with them and then just didn't and then recently yeah. got one again, so. Yeah, okay, all right, good to know, good to know. Um, okay, so Jason, back to that other question of what can we do to educate fellow artists or actors or whatnot about the importance of financial well-being? You know, it's a great question. I think Ira kind of really sum- summarized that really well. I also think, you know, like going back to college too, um, there's this exorbitant amount of money that people spend on college. And part of the reason maybe they don't educate about real world is because then they won't be able to make money off of interest from student loans for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. You know, you see right now, for example, that universities are hurting because they can't make money off of their football programs, which is scary because they're there to teach. Do you know what I'm saying? So like there's a whole overhaul of that whole thing that needs to happen. Part of it is about personal responsibility and how you teach that, but part of it is also looking out for one another too. And I think that's a big message of what this world is missing right now. I love it. Um, Okay, so in case people haven't figured out, you guys are both social justice junkies. (laughs) So you both started something called Take a Knee, Take a Stand. What is that? Can you tell us about it? Happily. Um, As a segue, the, the pandemic is so isolating. And one of the wonderful things about being at a firm with other people being in the theater and the arts um, when it's something like a film or a play or whatever, is you collaborate. And collaborating on things is, is a wonderful thing because ideas build upon each other, right? So when George Floyd was murdered, it was a particular moment where, you know, there have just been so many, obviously it was just, the most famous in a long line of terrible, terrible events in this country's awful four-year, 400-year history in that regard. I have it in my DNA to tell you the truth. I was bused uh, in Brooklyn to my high school, which was an extremely diverse um, school where it was very, you know, like half the, I don't know if half, but like half the kids were of color, you know, were BIPOC, or it's a new term, but black and Latino. And my father was a very, you know, liberal, person and uh, I was just in my DNA and I was lucky enough to meet Harry Belafonte and have worked on initiatives with him through the years and my law firm in particular. Um, I mean, Brown versus Board of Education. I mean, combining musical theater, you know, Kendra and Evs, the Scottsboro Boys, my law firm freed the Scottsboro Boys before, you know, any of us were born. All the racial justice initiatives that they've done and they've been doing for years and years and years. When George Floyd was murdered, I saw an email from the chair of my firm, Brad Karp, talking about, you know, we need to do more here. I just started thinking and thinking. And a few years ago, when Harry got the uh, Robert Kennedy Award, Colin Kaepernick was at the table and um, it popped into my head. I said, you know, what can we do as a collective? This is, you know, I'm 56 years old, I've seen this my entire life. It has been in my DNA since I was a little kid. And it's, it was just a moment of devastation. And I said, you know, what if everybody together in the world, you know, throughout America, because this is a moment that the world 
you know, mourned, um, other than Trump supporters, sorry, but it's true. And I had the idea that I thought was a good idea to say, what if we can collectively get everybody to take a knee? I'm old enough to remember this, the, the um, Hands Across America initiative in the 1980s to raise money for, I don't remember what, was for people in every single state to hold hands at a given moment. And so what I did in the spirit of collaboration is I wrote up a little something and I sent it to my address book. My address book obviously includes Jason. I also called Harry, who said, I like the idea, but let me sleep on it. And he called the next day and said, it's not enough. You know, it's symbolic, but what are you going to do from here? Same with a couple of the heads of my law firm, Ted Wells, Brad, Carp, and in steps Jason. Jason has the idea. Jason, you know, over a thousand people on this web uh, this page said, I want to participate. I want to help you. He said, you know, how do we have true accountability? You know, Harry said, we did a lot of good during the civil rights movement, but at some point we became complacent and we dropped the ball. What can we actually do to have ongoing change? And I'm not going to talk about the details. I'm sure you're going to Jason and, and um, you know, how it's mainly for white people, interestingly enough. Um, Jason said it. And a third person uh, named Ori Daniel, who um, couldn't participate tonight, you were nice enough to invite him. Ori then stepped in and said, Ori's the techie at Google and a brilliant guy and a generous one. And he said, I'm going to help you design this website. And frankly, Jason and Ori really ran with it from there. Um, you know, and I don't want to leave anyone out, but we had many other friends donating their time, their valuable time for free. And I just don't want to start naming people because I'm going to forget too many people, but Suzanne and Jolene, Carol and Dorothy Turan, the producer and that blah, blah, blah. There were just so many. And I'm going to stop because I think that really is where you come in, Jason, in terms of developing what the site truly needs to be and what we're trying to make it. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, that's really what happened. And it was the idea of like, how do we make it so that it's not only um, that we are saying something, but that we're doing something and that we're holding, like Ira said, the people accountable and ourselves accountable to take action. And so we came up with the idea of not only taking a knee to pay respect, but taking a stand against this so that it doesn't happen anymore. And against this being racism in America and we're focused primarily on the, um, black Americans right now, but it will start to seep into um, other persons of color and communities of color, you know, the Latino community and the Muslim community. Like there will be, and I see room for expansion on this topic. What we know, and I had a similar, uh, I grew up like kind of on a picket line, you know, union parents from protesting the Catholic Church at like nine years old to, um, or I've been ra- I was raised by activist parents. My mother was a community education specialist for, I'm um, a public spokesperson for the battered women shelter. And so I, like, I've always been raised around fighting for people. So that's where it's kind of in my DNA. And I also, also realized that, you know, part of the problem is people were saying it or not, they were under the impression that I'm not racist. Right. And that's what we've come to learn is the gateway into yes but you are because you said that and if you're not living an actively anti-racist life then you are somebody who is living in racism it's kind of a black or white um, way to look at it right and so it was like well how do we create a space where we can get more white people to take actions to be living a life of more active anti-racism first of all you have to educate yourself so the site has a learn section you have to understand, right? And so there's that, but then there's ways to take action from writing campaigns to signing um, 
petitions to making phone calls for anybody from Breonna Taylor to, um, you know, it started with George Floyd uh, was one of the ones, but Breonna, and that's one that, you know, we're 167 days or something past the day that she was murdered by the police, right? And we still don't have any justice. We're seeing inklings of things moving, but it's not really happening. So you have to continue to apply the pressure. Um, so there's learning, there's acting, there's supporting. So how do you support black, um, you know, there's a gateway to support black owned businesses, to donate to bail and legal funds and to donate to these organizations that are at the front line of the movement. Um, voting is a very key part of this too, particularly this year, um, not only uh, to get the current person who sits in the White House out of there, but also to get, you know, down ballot initiatives. So we get more people who are progressive that will not allow the, I think the clinical term is bullshit that's been happening in this country for the past 400 plus years to continue to happen. Finally, um, there's a focus section too, which would be great, um, which may be of interest to your audience. So I'm a parent, so we have a section for parents. We have a section for theater. We have a theater, theater, theater. <laughs> <laughs> um, very specific subsets that people can, if they're you know LGBTQA, trans rights, black trans rights. Because there's so much work to do. There's so much work to do. And all of that then people get reminded um, on a daily or weekly basis, depending on how they subscribe, with a text message on their phone. So if you text take a stand, all one word, to 474747, you'll be enrolled in the text messages. You'll get a link in each text message every day or week, and you'll be directed to take an action on the site. Um, and it's it's twofold, right? So we have people taking knees and we have people taking a stand. The idea is that you take a knee and you submit a picture of taking a knee, but you also agree to and commit to taking a stand by being held accountable with the actions and then actually doing them. So it's great to click through the link. You know, we have 350 actions taken um, six weeks since we've started, which is awesome. We want to have a lot more. We want to have this build of momentum. We want to see people not only taking it, but like reminding their friends to take action. Having, you know, it's it's as big as like, you know, getting justice for Breonna Taylor to, um, for example, in my school, my kids go to a very diverse and progressive school. They don't have enough black and person of color teachers. So I've been on the executive director and the principals on a daily I'm sorry, on a weekly basis of like, where are we with this? Where are we with this? Have you checked out this resource? How do we do this? How do we improve this? And now they're starting a coalition there to make sure that that's something that happens. Personal responsibility, again, coming back to what we talked to in the beginning, is really key to making sure that this is success. And not the site being a success, but ending racism in America. No, it is nonprofit. There is a section in terms of just very simply beyond how we protest and, and, and vote and all the rest and educate ourselves. We have a section that sends people to other sites like Black Lives Matter and the Gathering for Justice and you know organizations like that that have been fighting the good fight for many years and people can give them money you know if, if they want to. Millions of people, millions, were just so upset and outraged and what do you do? And what we learned as we proceeded in the formation, we rushed to form it over the course of a month. We tried to launch a month after uh, George Floyd was murdered. We got a lot of our guidance from black friends and leaders. We realized that, you know, yeah, we're well-intentioned, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? And get the input and the guidance of black leaders and friends from all walks of life. You know, we would send drafts of things we were writing to people like Dawn Smalls, who ran for public advocate and is a brilliant lawyer at Boyce Schiller. And, and she would say, I love you guys, but your tone is wrong. And she would say, why? And we would listen. And then, you know, maybe someone else would say it's okay and whatever. And we just went on from there and we researched through the internet, which is not the best, but it's what we had 
to try and listen to what black people and, and people of color in general were saying <clears throat> that they wanted, that they needed at this point in time. So, you know, as Jason said, education is so important. For me, it always goes back to the theater, right? And South Pacific, and it got its Pulitzer Prize because of the line, you've got to be carefully taught. Um, to hate and fear, the song about prejudice. So part of the education section is everything Jason said, plus hoping that people who log on to the site will teach their children to love and to not be afraid and the like, and that you know people are the same, but at the same time, the challenge that we face to figure out is and, and different, right? And that's why you know we're all learning as we go along. Education, protest, which includes voting, and we want to try and be a website for the age of COVID so people can also protest from indoors via the website. Some of the marches passed my apartment on East, you know, uh, in, in East uh, Midtown, Manhattan, and I was afraid. I was afraid to go out. I felt awful. The idea of being able to log on and, and to access the site and to try and do something uh, you know, was, was kind of empowering. And the last thing that they asked for is a general rule. Uh, census seems to be from our research, is, is to donate. And I'm not talking about necessarily reparations, that's its own discussion. I'm talking about what we said a minute ago, which is here are black organizations, they have their tasks, you know, they've assigned them. We are just a resource center, we are a hub. Here is a list of organizations, some of which have endorsed us, including voting rights organizations. Jason made a list of like 80 at the very beginning, and we're still trying to get them to just pay attention. But, you know, their hands are full. But those who have, they've looked at the site and they say, yeah, why not be listed? Because someone might say, you know, the way I'm going to take a stand today after I take my symbolic protest is I'm going to give 20 bucks to whichever one of these, uh, you know, very worthy organizations, they, they're inclined to, to help out. And and that's what they need. They're underfunded. Yeah, I think it's great. Um, I mean, it makes sense that you guys are nonprofit. I rem- like I went to the site and I saw the donate section and you have all these other charities and organizations, Black Lives Matter, et cetera, places to give. I, and I didn't realize that you guys were actually a nonprofit. You know, it makes sense now. Um, like episode six of this podcast, I interviewed Sandy Chang, and she's an a- Asian American. And she invited me to some discussion or something. And I said, oh, well, you don't want my voice there, you know, implying that I'm a white male. And she said, oh, no, 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 you're allowed to talk. You just have to educate yourself. That's what your site to me is for. It's for educating ourselves you know it's a, it's a safe space there's every single resource available because everything helps we're all learning and we have to learn and i will even further that that it's actually the white person's responsibility to end racism that's what's been voiced to us as well from people that we know and from what we've been reading it's like we can't put this on communities that have been the word i'm looking for is compromised that communities that have been forgotten or purposefully marginalized for centuries this is the work that we do. It's important that white people do it. It's also important that like everybody in the nation has to do it. Like we all have to get there together. And of course, whites are the majority, so they should have majority of the problem solving or, you know, the onus is on them. That's right. And to Jason's point and to your point as well, uh, the first quote on the front page of our website is from Dwayne Reed, not the drugstore guy who said, and I'm just going to read it, white supremacy won't die until white people see it as a white issue they need to solve rather than a black issue they empathize with. That is such an important quote. It's one thing to say, oh, you know, I'm going to go to Washington or New York and I'm going to march and, and then you're done. 
you know, you pat yourself on the back, I'm on the right side, right? What does that ultimately do? It does a little something, but if it's not, if it's not consistent and, and if there isn't, as Jason said, the accountability to ourselves and to our friends and to continue the discussion, you know, uh, and as Harry said, we just have to be vigilant and just keep this something that's in our daily, if not daily, weekly lives all the time because it's something, you know, we don't pretend to know more than anybody else, but we do know that we're doing our best to keep reading and educating and populating that website virtually every day with things that are coming from usually black leaders um, and writers, et cetera, from around the nation. Yeah, I think it's a good website. It's, there's so much to do and, and we can't, I, I easily get overwhelmed with how much progress needs to be made, but you know, I think go to the website and just pick one thing or like the daily action step or the weekly action step or monthly even. It's all about just small, consistent action. And the thing about daily is like, it's not about donating every day. It's about, you know, the reason we build it the way we build it is so you have a well-rounded approach because it will take like similar to what I was saying in the beginning, at least in my experience, it's like I get a better workout when I do a little bit every day, financially, physically, anti-racism, you know what I mean? So there's, there's something that we can do every day. And Jane Elliott, when asked about why we didn't learn about this, she says that we didn't get an um, education, we got an indoctrination into what white supremacy is. And so if you think about it in terms of the learning and the education aspects, it's like I would much rather learn what was stolen from my memory, right, or stolen from my teaching, right? Like because there are so many things from Tulsa to Wilmington to real deal civil rights fights, right, that we never learned about in school. Um, and that it's time, you know, so there are resources out there that you can learn about the history, but also just learn about what the impacts of those misgivings have been. That daily reminder, you know, uh, it's so good. I, I mean, I see it every day, no matter how busy I am, well, there it is on the phone. And it's like, because I wasn't thinking about the site. I wasn't thinking about any of this. And that little reminder that comes in the afternoon, it's like, ah. Uh, that is part of life as well. The educating of me, I'll call myself an average white guy. Uh, I was raised the opposite of you guys. I was did not come from a progressive family. I grew up in Missouri, all white, very white. Racism, okay, I learned about Martin Luther King Jr., but he wasn't painted in a wonderful light. And, you know, I learned about slavery, okay, but, like, that was sort of it. So all my education, and, and I don't, I don't think I'm an outlier of a person. <laughs> um, but all the education I've done on systemic racism has been things as an adult that I've read, watched, looked up or come across, you know, and I'm, I'm 32. And it's like, there's still so much I don't understand. And I feel like what I've learned in the last 10 years is amazing. But I still don't know, you know, half of everything. And I'm, you know, constantly learning new things, listening to podcasts or reading articles or reading books. Even with Black Lives Matter being such a big movement since like 2012, 2013, even with eight years of it, there's still so much that I'm learning today. Me too, at 56. It's a lifelong task, right? Uh, it's for all of us. Anti-racism, fighting prejudice in general, all of it. You know, what, what can be more important when you really think about it? Understanding, you know, putting yourself in someone else's shoes the best you know how Again, it goes back to theater, right? That's what writers do. That's what people who put on shows do. They try and put themselves into other people's shoes. And uh, all of this is just such an accident in so many ways. So we should be doing our best. Okay. So anything else about 
take a knee, take a stand, other than people should go to the website and get involved, get a daily reminder? Yeah, you can go to the website and sign up. It's take a knee, take a stand dot today. You can also text take a stand to 474747. That's 474747 to um, to get enrolled right away. And I'll put a link, artisticfinance.com. I'll put a link for this episode. In the back of, not even in the back, in the middle of my mind somewhere, I still hope that on the anniversary on May 25th of 2021, maybe thousands and thousands, if not more people, all do together on that date in honor of his memory and the memory of so many who've been murdered through the, the decades and the centuries altogether. Take that, take that name. There's something about a communal action. And it doesn't have to be a literal name. You know, it's, it's just taking a moment and, and thinking about it. Yeah. One last question. Where can people find out more about you two individually? Uh, Jason is laughing. I have no, I have no net presence. You're too busy watching movies and shows. You don't want, you don't need time for more people. That, that's <laughs> right. That's right. I'm, uh, I'm talky, but uh, through the website, if there are any questions, I don't even know if our names are on the website, Jason. You know, it's not about us. And I just want to give a quick shout out to Aria, uh, who's just been so amazing. So yeah, Aria and. And Carlos are two people who uh, manage our social media. You can find us on Instagram at Take a Knee, Take a Stand too. I'm at JasonDailyKennedy.com, and Jason Daily Kennedy is all my social. So, all right, well, guys, the first you know two guest interview. Nice. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This was fun. Thank you for having us. It was really fun. That was our interview with Ira Gilbert and Jason Kennedy. Both of them are quite positive and inspiring, and give me hope for the future. And in case you were wondering about Ira's story about a certain someone in a certain office, you'll have to join our private Patreon group to access it, or you'll have to ask Ira himself. I don't want to publish it publicly, even though it's a wonderful story and is actually quite tame compared to many other stories already out in the world. Okay, my takeaways from today's show are focus on your financial wellness. It's like exercise. A little bit every day improves your overall health. Get a financial advisor. While you're young or in college is not too soon. They cost money, but the benefit outweighs the cost. Real estate is something to look into. Not necessarily flipping or wholesaling, but buy and hold for the long term to grow wealth. And starting sooner than later is better. Trust. Find those people you can trust and stay with them forever. Usually I'd ask you to visit our website and consider becoming a patron of the show. But today... Let me ask you to visit takeaneetakeastand.today and sign up for your daily reminder on how to be anti-racist. We're all in this together, and we have to solve it together. Thank you again to Ira and Jason. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a rating and review. Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Nicole and Ethan Steimel. Producing consultant Anne Nygren-Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. Music by Chong Liu. Music by Chong Liu.